All right, this morning we are going to talk about a day on the church calendar called Palm Sunday. And it's a day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the, the shouts and the cheers of a crowd who ended up laying uh, jackets and cloaks and, and palm branches on the road before him as they welcomed him as king. And today we're going to look specifically at what Matthew tells us about this day. So if you have a Bible with you, open to Matthew chapter 20. If you are using one of the pew Bibles, one in the rack right in front of you, you can pull one of those out. We're going to be on page 801 if you're in a pew Bible this morning. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to get into verse, verses uh, in chapter 21 as well. And as we do, we're going to ask a few questions. I think there are questions that Matthew raises for us through the story of what happened on what we call now Palm Sunday. And so as you get there, as you turn in your scriptures, I want to set the scene for you a little bit. Jesus is traveling from Galilee, this region in the north where, where he lives and has done most of his ministry, and he's traveling to Jerusalem, and he's traveling there for the festival of Passover. This is something the Jews did every year to celebrate this, this Passover festival, and they would travel by the tens of thousands from the north to the south to be in Jerusalem for Passover. Now, Passover was this time when God's people, the Jewish people, would remember how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt centuries earlier, how they'd gone from being slaves to being free. And so it was this celebration that in God we are his people and he sets us free. So Passover is sort of their big freedom celebration, sort of like 4th of July might be for us, right? Except for they didn't have Neil Diamond songs and fireworks, but, but they celebrated seven or eight days long, this celebration of God's freedom for them. And, and Passover in Jesus' day had sort of a, a, a special flavor to it, a very unique twist, because when Jesus was alive, God's people would gather to celebrate Passover and their freedom, and the freedom they had, and the freedom they'd been given, except for the fact that at this time they were not free. They were ruled and controlled and oppressed by the Romans, by the Roman Empire. And so if, if you can imagine the tension that would, uh, that would occur in a moment like this. Imagine celebrating 4th of July, that we are a free people, and yet while we celebrated, we were being ruled and oppressed by the Soviet Union. Imagine the tension. Imagine all the deep feelings that would happen in a moment like this. Well, that's sort of what's happening in Jesus' day. Now, you can see on, on the map on the screens behind me that Jesus takes this path from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem, and he travels down the east side of the Jordan River and across the river into Jericho and then on into Jerusalem through this little town called Bethany. And Bethany is significant in this story because only a few weeks earlier, Jesus had come down to visit Bethany. He's, he's been in Bethany real recently, and he went there for a very specific reason. Do you remember why? To attend the funeral of one of his dearest friends, Lazarus. And it was at this funeral where Jesus did something that no one could have imagined. 
He stood at the tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And this man who was once dead came walking out. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And if you can only imagine the buzz and the energy that is now sort of happening around Jesus. So here's what we have. We have Jesus traveling from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem for this Passover festival where he's done all these miracles and most recently this miracle where he's raised a man from the dead and there is all this buzz. There's all this anticipatory energy circulating around Jesus and there is this question in the air. The question that everybody on the road, on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus is asking and that's this question. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And more specifically, is he the Messiah? After all we've seen from him, after all the miracles, after all the teaching, after all we've heard, could this be the savior that we've been waiting for, the ultimate deliverer that God has promised to send in order to set his people free once and for all? And so there's this question, who is this Jesus? Is he Messiah? And here's where we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 20 this morning, starting in verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, see now they're moving from Jericho towards Bethany, towards the very place where Lazarus was raised. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. You bet they did. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. See, friends, this is a story not just about an amazing miracle. This is a story where Jesus is answering the question that is on everybody's mind. This is a story where Jesus begins to declare and acknowledge exactly who he is. You notice that twice in this story, these two men call Jesus what? Lord, son of David. And they don't just say it, they shout it. And when they're told to be quiet, they shout it even louder. This is Lord, son of David. This is a declaration of who they believe Jesus to be. And so certainly all eyes then turn to Jesus. What will he say to this? What will he do in response to someone saying that he is Lord, son of David? And by the way, this title, son of David, it was a term that every Jew of that day understood. It's a reference right out of the Old Testament from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises King David a son Someone in his lineage who will rule and reign on an, on an eternal throne forever over an eternal kingdom. 
This was the official title for Messiah, for the deliverer, for the coming king that would set the people free. And, and so what's so shocking about this story is not that these two men call Jesus son of David. People have been anticipating that maybe, just maybe, Jesus might be the Messiah for a long time. For a long time, after every miracle, after every amazing prophetic teaching, people have said, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the son of David? And every single time up until this point, Jesus has said what? He's either said nothing or he said, shh, 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 shh. Let's not talk about that yet. Let's not, let's not, let's not go there yet. Let's not it's, not, it's not my time yet. Let's not acknowledge that publicly just yet. He's always put the kibosh on this label until all of a sudden in this moment with this huge buzzing crowd headed to Jerusalem and they say, son of David. And Jesus says, you betcha, you betcha. That's his response. It's not in the text, but that's what he says. You see, <laughs> he not only acknowledges these men when they say this to him, they not, he not only acknowledges, yes, I am the son of David. You notice it's capitalized, by the way, son of David. Other places in the scriptures, he's called a son of David, little s. It just means he's related to David. But in this moment, it's the, the son of David, this anticipated Messiah. And Jesus not only acknowledges this, this title, but he goes to these men and he takes it a step further. He restores their sight now, that's pretty amazing, right? It's not something that happens every day. It's not something that Jesus does every day. But it's an amazing thing. But it's not just a cool miracle. It's Jesus in a whole nother way saying, I am going to affirm that I am who these guys say that I am. You remember the scene when Jesus first launches into his public ministry? He stands in Nazareth, his hometown, at the synagogue, and he's preparing to preach. And he takes the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens to a very specific passage. And it's a passage about who do you think? The Messiah, the son of David. And he reads this passage about the Messiah. And if you remember, it says this. It says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he, anoint, he has anointed me, that's the son of David, that's Messiah, to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and... Recovery of sight from the blind. You see, what Jesus says here is, here's what Isaiah says, when Messiah comes, when son of David comes, when the king of kings truly comes, he is the kind of person who will do these things. He's the kind of person who will bring sight to the blind. And so when Jesus does this, what he's telling the crowd is, you've been wondering who I am? You've been wondering to yourselves? You've been talking about it? Along the road, could this be son of David? Could this be Messiah? And Jesus says, absolutely. Absolutely. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there. There's actually another prophecy. It's a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. And again, a prophecy that everybody in Jesus' day knew. Another prophecy about the coming king, the Messiah, the son of David. And it's this prophecy about how when he comes, he will come riding on a donkey. Actually, it's even more specific. It says he will come riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Very specific prophecy. And, and, and so as the story continues, you will see how Jesus leans into this prophecy. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see as I read this next section how intentional Jesus is. How, 
how he does things on purpose and intentionally, how he orchestrates this entire scene. Because sometimes we get this idea that as Jesus comes into Jerusalem for Holy Week, and the crowds praise him, and then he's sort of dragged through the city, and things happen, and then he's, he's arrested. It's like the whole thing is happening to Jesus. Like he's just caught up in this moment. Like the crowds just appeared and happened to be there. And yet when we read the scriptures, what we discover is that nothing happens to Jesus accidentally. Jesus intentionally orchestrates the entire thing in order to make some very clear statements about who he is. Again, here's what Matthew says. This is right after the scene with the two blind guys. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Does it sound like Jesus has orchestrated some things? This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion... See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. You see, they know who Jesus is. They know exactly what he's doing. He, by, by orchestrating this whole donkey thing and this ride into town, is making a very clear statement. You've been wondering if I'm son of David? I am son of David. You've been wondering if I am the coming anticipated king and Messiah? That's exactly who I am. Who is Jesus? Messiah, King, and Lord. And now that Jesus has publicly declared this, publicly been willing to sort of acknowledge and state and proclaim who exactly he is, there are now only two possible outcomes to this story. You see, this was such a huge moment because as they ride into Jerusalem and Jesus says, you want to know who Messiah is? It's me. Now all of a sudden, everybody knows, especially his disciples, there are only two possible endings to this story. He will either be crowned or he will be killed. There's going to be a coronation or there's going to be a crucifixion because this is no small claim. The Romans did not take lightly People riding into their cities and saying, you want to know who the real king is? It's me. You want to know who's going to set people free? I'm going to set people free. And the Romans said, uh-uh, no, you ain't. I want to suggest this to you this morning. Jesus' claim, as he rides into Jerusalem and says, I am the Lord, I am the king, is no small claim for them, but it was, it's no small claim for you and me either. Just like Jerusalem, I think Jesus comes to you and me. He comes riding into our lives and he says, I am the Lord. I am king. And just like the city of Jerusalem, every single one of us has to make a decision. Will we crown him 
or will we crucify him? Will we let him rule and reign and be king in our lives or will we cast him aside and reject him? So the first question that Palm Sunday raises for us is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he king? Is he Messiah? Is he Lord? The second question is what does this mean? The fact that Jesus claims to be king and savior and Messiah and Lord has some major implications What does this claim mean for me and you? And the answer to this question is, I think, why most people don't really commit to following Jesus and making him Lord in their life. The answer to this question is why I think so many people just dabble in Christianity or or claim to believe in God or maybe ask Jesus in their life to be Savior so they can go to heaven someday or maybe come to church But the reason they don't decide to make Jesus Lord is the answer to this question. And it may be a little complicated, so stick with me. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, what's the reaction of the city? So Jesus, on the road, making very clear, bold statements about who he is. That he is Messiah, that he is son of David, that he is king and Lord of all. And then he comes riding into Jerusalem. And how does the city receive him? How do they respond to him coming into town? What do they do? Well, most of us think that they cheer, right? That they cheer and they say, Hosanna and blessed is the name. But that's actually not what the Bible says. And you guys are saying, that can't be true, Pastor Dave, because I learned that in Sunday school. And we just read it. I'm going to have you read it again with me right now. You see, it says back in Matthew 20, 29, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. So there are these pilgrims, there are these people following him and going with him. And then it says in Matthew 21, 9, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted. So the crowds that have been moving with him towards the city, they're the ones who are saying, Hosanna, this is Jesus, this is Messiah, this is King. But how does the city respond? We're actually told... In verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? You see, the crowd that's been with him on the road, they're convinced of who he is. They are declaring who he is. But the city, they're still not sure. And this word stirred, it says, the whole city was stirred. And this isn't like... Santa Claus is coming to town stirred. Like, I'm so excited, you know. You know, my stocking is hung by the, ch- the chimney with care, and I got cookies and milk out, and he's coming, and I'm, I'm just stirred up, and I'm not going to sleep tonight. You remember that feeling when you were a kid? It's not what the author is talking about here. This word stirred uh, is a Greek word that's, that's the word seo, and it's more about a showdown at the OK Corral than Santa coming to town. What the author's telling us here is like, it's, it's like, here comes Jesus. I've been practicing that this week. Um, this word stirred actually means to shake, to agitate, to cause to tremble, to be thrown into a tremor, to quake for fear, to agitate the mind. You see, when Jesus comes to town declaring that he is Messiah, that he is Lord and King, the city is stirred. They are shaking and trembling and agitated and fearful. 
Because this is a city, these are a people that know things in their world are about to get disrupted. That their world is about to be disturbed and tampered with and even turned upside down. You see, these are people that know that when someone rolls into town on a donkey saying, I am son of David, I am the savior, I am the real king, things are going to get messy. Their lives are never going to be the same. And friends, I'll suggest this to you. When Jesus advances into your life, things are going to be stirred as well. Things are going to be tampered with and messed with and even turned upside down. They are never going to be the same. In fact, what is the very first thing Jesus does? He comes riding into town on this donkey he enters the city, and what's the very next thing he does? Does anyone know? He goes straight into the temple and starts flipping over furniture. <laughs> right? He doesn't roll into town and say, hey, everyone, I'm here. Everything's going to be just fine now. All good. No more worries. No more stress. No more anxiety. Ah, oh, everyone take a deep breath. No, he goes straight for the temple and he starts turning over tables. Why? Because these are people in the temple who are using God for selfish gain. Who are using God to persecute others. And Jesus says, when I come into town, when I am king and lord and savior, there are some things that are going to have to change. You see, they were so tempted to use God for their purposes. And Jesus rolls in and says, no, 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 no. God wants to use you for his purposes. When I'm Lord, we shift from God. I want to use you for my purposes to God use me for your purposes. And that's the shift that Jesus wants to make. And in order to make that shift happen in our lives, Jesus knows that he's going to have to shift some things around in our lives and in our hearts. So let me get real practical with you here. When Jesus comes rolling into the city of your life, he is going to bring some great stuff. Peace and joy and truth and purpose and grace. And he's also going to stir some things up. He's going to shake up and agitate the things in your life that do not line up with who God wants you to be or how he's calling you to live. He's going to shift some furniture. There's going to be some tables moved around in your mind and heart and life. And that can be and should be a pretty stirring thing. That should cause some trembling, some fear, some maybe even anxiety if we really understand what Jesus wants to do with us. Because Jesus will come into your life and he will stay, say stuff like, here I come, I'm moving in and I love you and I accept you, but the fact that you are living with your girlfriend that doesn't fly. That's not what's best for you. That's not God's will for you. We're going to need to move some things around here. The fact that you're still harboring, harboring bitterness in your heart against your mother or brother or former boss or friend or son or ex-husband, I'm going to be patient and I'm going to be gentle, but I can't just let that be. If you want me to come into your life and be king and lord, then some things are going to have to change. Your priorities and your resource allocation patterns and your spending habits, they, 
They need some work. They need to align more fully with God and his plans and purposes in this world. If I'm going to rule in you, Jesus says, this marriage you're in and the way you treat your spouse, I don't think so. Not when I come into town. I need to turn some things over. This dating relationship you're dabbling with, your willingness to compromise yourself and your core faith convictions because you feel a little fluttery on the inside about this other person or you're scared that God may keep you single, that is not in line for what God wants for you. The way you do your taxes, your attitude towards people different than you, this prideful identity you've developed because of your position at work or because of your physical attractiveness, or because of your ability to make a lot of money, we're going to need to work on that. We're going to need to do some furniture rearranging in your life and heart. We're going to need to get rid of some things. I need to do some character transformation in you, some deep surgery in your heart and soul, and it's not going to be quick, and it's not going to be painless, and it is not going to be easy. You see... You want to know why the city is stirred when Jesus comes to town? Because when Jesus comes to town, tables get turned over and things get rearranged. You know, one thing I find in my life is that Jesus being king is not really all that much fun or easy or convenient a lot of times. I mean, Jesus being king in my life, when, he, when Jesus is Lord and he's calling the shots for Dave, it's great on Sundays, I love it on Sundays when we're singing and like, God, you'd be, you be lifted high. I got the hands raised over here in the front. Like some of you don't do the hands raised thing, but you'll get there. I mean like, yes, be Lord and King and it's so great. And then I get home and Jesus starts saying like, that attitude has to shift. And, and you can't be that entitled. And no, you're not allowed to seek revenge on that. I'm like, no, Jesus, why do you have to mess with everything just let me do it for once, you know? I just want those sinful things that my heart wants to do, and Jesus is always challenging and moving and tweaking. It's not all that fun, and it's certainly not easy. And so Jesus comes into town, and there's this question, who is he, who is he? And he says, I am Lord, and I am King, and I am here to call the shots. And what does that mean? That means things in your life are going to get moved. That means there's some stuff in you and me that needs to get stirred up. And so that leads to the final question. It's a question, well, then why should we do it? <laughs> why would I ever, like, let Jesus be Lord if he's going to start flipping tables over in my life? Why should we trust him? And the answer I'll give you right at the beginning is this. God is always doing something bigger than we can, than we can see. See, Palm Sunday, if any day shows us this uh, more clearly than Palm Sunday. I don't know which one it is. God is always doing something bigger than what we can see. You know how it is with your kids? You're, you're doing things in your kids' lives. You're implementing things like maybe a punishment, and, and they have to go to bed, you know, 15 minutes early, and all they can see is that 15 minutes, that you have stolen 15 minutes 
of their pre-bedtime cartoon time, like the radical injustice of this, and they will negotiate and delay and all this stuff, right? Like all they can see is the punishment. All they can see is this moment. And yet you're trying to build character. You're trying to build, like you're trying to teach them right and wrong and about consequences in this world. You're trying to do something so much bigger than what they can see, but all they can see is no dessert tonight. Are you kidding? By the way, I'll just say as a side note, the bed early deal is one of Amy and I's very favorite punishments. Hey, let me just give a parenting tip real quick. If you're going to punish your kids and teach them a lesson, you know, use a punishment that benefits you, <laughs> right? Like, like bed early equals more time for us alone to relax in the evening. It's just, a, I mean, it's just common sense, right? Like that's in the scriptures. I don't know where, but you can find it. Um, it's probably not. But the point is, is that as parents, we're always doing things in our kids' lives, and they don't really see what we're up to, and yet we're up to something so much more. It's exactly how God is, friends. It's exactly what's happening in this story. Because all the people in this story see something. The city sees Jesus coming in as another would-be Messiah that's going to create tension and unrest and revolution, and it's going to disrupt their lives, and they know that in the end, he'll probably be stamped out and crushed and killed, and that's all they can see. The crowd that's coming with him is hopeful that maybe, just maybe, this is the guy who's going to free them from Roman oppression, who's going to throw the Romans out and bring them earthly freedom. That's what they see. But God is doing something so much more than that in this story. Jesus comes to town and he says, you don't just need Roman bondage broken, you need sin bondage broken. You don't need just to solve your problem with Rome, you need me to solve your problem with God. You see, I care about Rome, I care about your suffering, but I'm going to be doing something even so much more than you can possibly even Imagine, friends, God is always doing something bigger than you can see. When I was a youth pastor, um, back in the good old days uh, of youth ministry, hanging out with kids and talking about Jesus, some of the best days of my life, uh, we used to throw these lock-ins. Actually, every year we would throw this huge lock-in, and uh, we'd invite all the kids from the neighboring high schools. Like, we'd try and get hundreds and hundreds of kids. I think our, our, our biggest lock-in was like 350 high school kids. Imagine 350 high school kids in our church all night. The devastation and destruction was amazing. I mean, it was phenomenal. And we would, we would go all out. We would have laser tag in an area, and we had mini golf in an area, and we had jolly jumps and a whole karaoke room and an entire video game room where kids would go in and game. And, and the, all my students, all my kids would set, set up all these rooms. They did little teams, and they would do these rooms. And we even had hot tubs brought in. Not my wisest move, I know. I was young. I asked forgiveness. Um, and like the kids would be in a hot tub tubs. Which, oh man, that was terrible. Anyway, it was just this amazing, don't get any ideas, Nick and Luke. Uh, it was just this amazing night, right, where these kids would come for all night fun, and I would recruit my wife to come for the eat night, and she would leave early. But um, it was just a blast, and for the kids, they thought, what's this night about? It's about fun and not having to go to sleep and all these amazing things and a chance to have our friends here and all this stuff, and yet, what was that night really about? It was about a short little moment of about 20 minutes right in the middle of the night where those kids would gather in our chapel and they would sit and we would talk to them about the love of God. 
kids who've never been in church, kids who hadn't been in church in years would sit and they would hear some of them for the first time, Jesus loves you, God loves you, he wants to have a relationship with you. You could have peace and hope and joy. You could have a relationship with the God of the universe. See, that whole night wasn't just about fun and games, it was about something so much more. It was about the five to 10 to maybe even 15 kids that would come back the next week for youth group. That's what that night was about. See, we were doing something bigger than they could imagine. And friends, here's the deal with Jesus. He comes to all of us and says, let me into your life. I want to be Lord and King, and I want to call the shots. I want to have a relationship with you where I am Lord, where I am in charge and and ruling and running your life. That's the relationship he offers. And I think more of us would do that, more of us would step into that relationship with Jesus if we believed this truth, that God is doing something bigger than I can imagine. You know, I would do it. I would trust him. I would have that conversation with my boss. I would have that conversation with my friend. I would do that tough thing with my son or daughter or parent or boyfriend. I would tell someone about my addiction and get help. I would say yes to this ministry that God has asked me to step into that I feel ill-equipped and not ready for. I would start serving my spouse in marriage instead of critiquing how they don't serve me. If, even though I don't see the end, even though I don't see how it's going to work out, if I believed and trusted that God was always at work doing something that I could not see, if I believed that, then I would be willing to step in and let Jesus be Lord of my life. You know what that's called, friends? Where we don't see the end game, where we don't see how things are going to turn out, but we choose to trust God and follow him anyway? Faith. Faith, you know what faith is? Not seeing how things are gonna go and then walking down a path. It's trusting God even when you do not know where he's taking you. It's saying, Jesus, you be Lord, even though I don't know what you're up to here. I don't know where this is gonna go. This feels scary to me and unpredictable. See, what Palm Sunday shows us again is that God is always up to something more, something bigger and greater than we could ever understand. And so the big question today is this, even though you're not sure how it's going to play out, do you trust Jesus? Is he Lord of your life? Does he have control, not just of some parts, but of all parts? Does he have control even when you don't understand or don't see where it's headed? Do you have faith that he is up to something bigger than you can see? So this morning, I want to ask you a few questions. We're going to go to these tables and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is a meal where we get a chance to physically, real physically and tangibly, once again declare, Jesus, you are Lord. You're in control. And maybe this morning you've never made that declaration. Maybe you're sitting in here and you've dabbled with Christianity or you've been kind of messing with church a little bit, but you've never made the decision, Jesus, you are Lord and King of my life. I receive you. Come into my life and call the shots for me. I surrender myself to you. Maybe you've never made that decision. That's like the the core confession of the Christian faith. Jesus is Lord, maybe you need to make that confession today. Maybe you're ready to surrender your heart to God. If so, come to the table, receive the bread and the cup and declare his death and resurrection for me. He is the Lord and King of my life. And again, by the way, friends, that's not an instantaneous process. 
That's not something that's gonna happen overnight. That's you saying, Jesus, I'm giving you permission to move into my life and to start becoming Lord of every nook and cranny. Some of you are in here this morning and you, Jesus has been Lord of your life for some time. And yet as you sit here today, there's a situation, there's a person, there's an attitude, there's something in your life where you haven't given up the wheel and you're continuing to drive the train and you are still calling the shots and you haven't handed control over to Jesus. You haven't said, Jesus, you can be Lord of this one too. And maybe this morning Jesus is saying, I know that you've said I'm Lord and I want to be even more Lord of your life. Specifically, I want to be Lord right here. And maybe today, today's the day where you need to say, I'm giving this one over to you, Lord, and I do not know what it looks like and I do not know how it's going to turn out, but I trust and I believe and I have faith that you are up to something beyond what I can see. But everyone today, I'm guessing, has the opportunity to, to in a huge way, but also in a very specific way in your life, make that declaration at the table again. Jesus, you are Lord. And so this morning, I'm gonna invite you to come when you're ready to think about that place in your life where he needs to rule and reign again and to come to the table to take the elements back to your seat. And when you're ready, you make that declaration with that bread and with that cup. And I'm going to put a verse on the screens from Ephesians chapter 3. It's just about the fact that God is always at work, always doing more than you can imagine. And so when you surrender your life to him in a specific area or in a general, in a huge, enormous way, he's going to be doing things that you can't even imagine. There are outcomes at the end of that road that you can't even imagine right now. Things he wants to do in you, things he wants to do in other people, things he wants to do in the wider world, probably all three. But again, the invitation today is clear on this Palm Sunday. Will you invite Jesus in as Lord to move some furniture around in your heart so that he can take you where he wants to lead? When you're ready, you can come forward to the tables, receive the elements on your own back at your seats. I'll pray and then the tables will be open. This morning, Father, we give you thanks and praise for being king, for moving into the places of our lives that we, we don't really want you to, and yet we know, God, we know that it's best for you to be in control, and yet it is so hard to give up control. I'm praying for people in this room right now that are having a hard time opening their palms, opening their minds and hearts to you. I pray, God, for people in this room who have yet to declare you as Lord and Savior in their lives, who have yet to say, be king in my life, God. Spirit, move in them. Show them how much freedom and joy and peace is involved in that, even as you're gonna start to rearrange some things. Give us courage, Lord, as a community to take bold steps, to surrender the big things, the hard things, the difficult things that are holding us back from being your people in this world and experiencing you more fully. By your Holy Spirit, God, give us, give us courage and boldness and faith beyond what we can muster on our own today. And as we come to the table to declare your death and resurrection, remind us of your great power, your great power that can be at work in us. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you and we lift you up. We pray it all in Jesus' name. You know how like in your house, when you've been living there for a while and you got a room set, like 
this is where the couch goes, and here's where the end table, and I got a chair here, and, you, and you're just used to it. It just feels good to you. And then, like an interior decorator, like Linda Josephson comes in and says, mm, 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 this is all wrong. And they want to move stuff around, and they want to change your curtains. And you're like, I love those curtains, you know? Like, no, and it feels bad. Like, you don't want things to move. You like them where they are. And then they do all their thing, and you walk in and go, oh, that's way better. Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I do it that way? That's kind of how Jesus is, right? He moves into your life and he starts moving things around. And when he starts moving things around, it's not always easy and it doesn't feel comfortable all the time. But then once he has things set the way he wants them set, there is a peace and there is a joy and there is a sense that, yes, this is right. This is the way it was supposed to be. And so all he says is, can I have permission to do that in your life? It may be uncomfortable for a while, but in the end, you're gonna be so glad you did. And that all starts with this declaration. Jesus is Lord. He's in control. I want him to call the shots. And friends, if you've made that decision, if Jesus is Lord of your life, the way you publicly profess that is right over here in this tank through baptism. By saying, I die to being in control of my life and I surrender my life to him. I am raised to him being Lord, him being in charge, him calling the shots. I am raised to a new life where things are the way they're supposed to be. And if you've given your life to Christ and you have not walked into the waters of baptism, let me just implore you and encourage you. What better day to do it than Easter Sunday? And I'm telling you, you will not regret it. And so we have a class on Tuesday. If you have questions or concerns or ideas, come, let's talk. But we would love for you to be publicly baptized where you say to our whole church, I'm saying Jesus is Lord of my life. I'm giving him permission to start moving the furniture around in my life. And it's a chance for our church to come around you and say, he's doing the same thing in me. As he does it in you, he's gonna be doing it in me. And let's experience this walk with him together. It's a way to just say, invite the community into your life with Christ. And so, again, Tuesday night for the class. Uh, if you're new around here and you want to just start getting connected to our church, there's a gathering in the back, the Connect Room. I'm new here. If you need prayer this morning, there'll be people down in front who would love to pray with you, maybe about some places in your life where Jesus is still trying to become Lord. And I know you want to get out of here and watch the Blazer game, and even I don't care because Jesus is Lord and it matters more. So... May Jesus be Lord, and may he be Lord of the Blazer game today, right? Amen. God bless you, friends. We love you. We'll see you soon.